Well, there are no truths worth knowing more than truths about God. There are no truths worth knowing more than truths about God. And that's what's so great about the Bible, of course, isn't it? Because every time we open the Bible and read it prayerfully and carefully, we learn precious truths about God from Him. Truths that are worth knowing more than any other truth. And tonight, as we dip back into the book of Joshua, we learn a truth about the Lord God that in many ways is a unique truth. This truth about the true and living God actually sets him apart from all other so-called gods. Sets him apart from the God of Islam, from the God of Judaism, from the gods of Buddhism and Hinduism. It's a marvellous truth that the Lord God, about the Lord God, sorry, that confronts us tonight. And it's the truth that the true and living God, the Lord, shows mercy to undeserving people. Treats people who deserve nothing but his condemnation and anger and punishment. Treats them with kindness and love and mercy. Make sure you have your Bible open in Joshua chapter 2. Because that's where we discover this great truth. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of your bulletin. And let me pray and ask for God's help as we listen to him tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, that uh, there are no truths worth knowing more than truths about you. And so, Father, we ask simply that you would teach us truth about yourself tonight. In particular, we want to understand more deeply, more truly, more clearly what it means that you are the Lord of mercy And more than knowing it, Father, we want to be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you remember, hopefully, from last time, that in chapter 1 of uh, the book of Joshua, the stage was well and truly set for the action of the book to begin. You remember that Joshua, back in chapter 1, was commanded by the Lord to take the land. But more importantly, Joshua was assured by the Lord of his constant presence and help. And so the words, be strong and courageous, resounded a number of times through the chapter. And so we we heard Joshua, didn't we? He prepared his officers that in three days' time, after 40 years of waiting and wandering in the wilderness, they would finally enter the land that the Lord had promised to give them. That was chapter 1. And so really, as the curtains draw back on chapter 2, we may well expect all sorts of action to unfold before us. Invasion, conquering, battles. And if that is our expectation, we may well be disappointed with chapter 2. For in fact, in chapter 2, the Israelite army don't cross the Jordan. That doesn't happen until chapter 3. And in fact, I reckon that if chapter 2 wasn't there, and you were reading Joshua from cover to cover you wouldn't really miss it. You could actually read from the end of chapter 1 directly onto the beginning of chapter 3 and I don't think you'd notice that anything was missing. Which raises the question, what's chapter 2 doing here? Let's see if we can work it out. Although it might not be the action we expect, there still is some action and we're going to do a quick summary of it now. In verse 1, we read this, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, 
Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. I wonder firstly whether Joshua had a sense of deja vu in sending the spies into the land. Because, I don't know if you realise it, but some 40 years earlier, after travelling from Mount Sinai to the edge of the Promised Land, Moses, he too had sent spies into the land, 12 spies. And in fact, Joshua was one of them. Sadly, tragically, you can read about it in the book of Numbers, of those 12 spies that went into the land, only two came back urging the Israelites to enter. And they were Joshua and a man named Caleb. The rest, the other 10 spies, they came back really afraid of the inhabitants. And Israel, infected by their fear, refused to enter. And because of their refusal, they were forced by the Lord in judgment to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole disobedient generation had perished, except for Caleb and Joshua. And here in our chapter, Joshua once more sends spies into the land. However, it's hard not to get the impression that these spies were about as useless as the earlier models. The second half of verse 1, I'll read it again. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. It's recorded with our comments, so we mustn't make too much of it, but it seems at least strange and suspicious and disappointing. They're told to explore the land and they go and stay in the house of a prostitute. But it's not the focus of the chapter and therefore it's not ours either. For although the men were sent in secretly, the secret is quickly out. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. The king of Jericho is afraid. The people of Jericho are afraid because there is a nomadic nation encamped just on the other side of the river and they're scared. And we'll see next time in the chapters that follow that their fear was justified. But here the king demands the spies be handed over. Rahab lies to protect the men. She says they had left when really she'd hidden them on her roof. Verse 7, verse 7. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. The city of Jericho is a city surrounded by a wall. The spies are inside the city. The gate is now shut. And so the pressing question is, well, how are they going to get out? And that's answered in verse 15. Verse 15. So Rahab let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of of the city wall. It's an ingenious escape. And having escaped the city, the men continued to be helped by Rahab, this time following her instructions to hide in the hills. Verse 22. Verse 22. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, 
and told him everything that had happened to them. I reckon that last bit must have been an interesting debriefing session with Joshua, especially their choice of a hiding place in the city. But anyway, the chapter closes with the same resounding confidence and assurance that we met back in chapter 1, verse 24. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. See, like I mentioned earlier, chapter 2 closes at almost the same place as chapter 1, eagerly anticipating Israel to finally enter the land that the Lord would give them. So the question again is, what's chapter 2 doing here? Nothing really much happens. Well, the answer to that question is found not so much in the action, but instead in a surprising appeal that we find in the midst of the action. The significance of chapter 2 is actually centred on the plea of the pagan prostitute Rahab to the spies sheltering on her roof. The significance of chapter 2 is centred on the verses that I skipped in the very centre of the chapter. Point 2 on your outline and verse 8. Let me read. Before the spies lay down for the night... She went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. See, why did Rahab shelter these enemy spies? Why why did Rahab lie to her king? Why did Rahab help these enemy spies escape from her city? That's really the strange thing about chapter 2. And here we begin to to discover the answer. For you see, she knows what we heard back in chapter 1. She knows that the Lord has given the land to the Israelites. In fact, although she is not of Israel, she knows much of the Lord God. She in fact knows of his might, his might. Verse 10, verse 10, let's keep listening to Rahab, verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. See, Rahab knows of the might of the Lord. She knows how the Lord has acted on behalf of his people. We're not told why. Maybe she borrowed the DVD, Prince of Egypt. I'm not sure. But she knows about the way the Lord brought them from Egypt across the water. She knows of the mighty acts of the Lord. And she knows too of the majesty of the Lord. Verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's a stunning confession of the majesty of the Lord, don't you reckon? Your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This confession of Rahab is actually precisely the confession that the Israelites were to carry into the promised land. Let me read to you a bit from the book of Deuteronomy, the book immediately before Joshua, which really contains lots of pep talks from Moses before this generation entered. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, let me read to you the urgings of Moses upon the Israelites. He said this, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. 
See, no other God in heaven, no other God on earth other than the Lord. That was to be the Israelite conviction in the land. And here in Jericho, we meet someone with just that conviction. And we hear it here in Jericho from the lips of a pagan prostitute in a city doomed to destruction. It's stunning. Rahab knows of the might of the Lord. She knows of the majesty of the Lord. And even more important than that, she knows of the mercy of the Lord. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Rahab there is appealing for mercy from the Lord, who is both mighty and majestic. She knows the reality of his might. She knows the reality of his majesty. And so rightly, she seeks refuge in his mercy. She seeks his kindness. She seeks his salvation. Which, when you think about it, is actually an, out, an, out, an outrageous appeal. Outrageous, scandalous, really. A pagan, a prostitute. Who is she to seek the mercy of the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel? You see, she, like the rest of the people of Canaan, are under the Lord's judgment. It's their wickedness that has brought upon the impending invasion of Israel. The Israelites under Joshua are actually instruments of the Lord's judgment. And again, Moses had explained that very clearly back in Deuteronomy chapter 9 this time. Let me read it. You can look it up later. It's chapter 9 verse 4. He said this to them. After the Lord has driven them out before you, talking about the other nations in the land, like Jericho, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Did you catch the point? Joshua is leading the Israelites in to take possession of the land. But that was nothing less than the judgment of the Lord upon the wickedness of the people of Canaan, on the wickedness of the people of Jericho. Very important as we read the book of Joshua that we appreciate that the people of Canaan, the people in the land, they are not innocent victims. In fact, the very timing of the invasion was because the sin of the people within Canaan had reached its full measure. And so here in Joshua chapter 2, it's more than just a couple of spies meeting a woman. In Joshua chapter 2, we are reading the first encounter of Israelites, instruments of the Lord's judgment, and they are meeting with someone who is under that very judgment. Someone who is under the imminent disaster of facing the wrath of the Lord God. See, they enter the land... And they meet this woman thoroughly deserving of God's judgment. And she, what does she do? She appeals for mercy. She appeals to the kindness of the Lord. She doesn't want justice. She wants mercy from the judge of the whole world. 
It's a scandal. And yet, of course, it's this very appeal, surprising and and outrageous though it is, it's this very appeal to the mercy of the Lord by this prostitute Rahab. It's this appeal, which is why chapter 2 is here and why we can't dispense with it. For you see, and this is a really important point, in the, if you like, in the chronology of Joshua, the story of Joshua, before we read of the Lord's judgment, we read of his mercy. Before we read of his judgment, we read of his mercy. Because if the appeal is outrageous and scandalous, how much more so the answer? Verse 14, point three in your outline in verse 14. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Rahab is assured there of the mercy she seeks. Can we trust the spies? I don't think so. Can we trust the Lord to show mercy even on the eve of his right judgment? Well, come with me to chapter 6 and we'll see. Come forward in time now. Chapter 6 and verse 20. Chapter 6 and verse 20, this is really right at the end of the battle of Jericho. Chapter 6, verse 20. When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, and so every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys judgment joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her so the young men who had done the spying went in brought out rahab her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of israel then they burned the whole city and everything in it But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this very day. That's an outrageous answer to an outrageous appeal, don't you think? But it's a delightful answer. It's a delightful answer. On the other side of the Lord's right, just judgment on Jericho, a citizen of Jericho survived and lived among the Israelites until the time this book was written. And you know what? Rahab's presence among the Israelites would have been a constant, glorious testimony to the mercy of the Lord. Wherever Rahab went within the Israelite camp, I guess they would have said or thought, there goes Rahab. The Lord spared her. The Lord showed mercy to her. She would have been a constant reminder of the Lord of mercy. She would have been a constant reminder of the mercy that triumphs over judgment. Would the Lord of holiness answer the plea of some pagan prostitute thoroughly deserving of his righteous anger? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. For he is the Lord. 
He is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. See, the true and living God of the Bible, the Lord, he is not like those other so-called gods who demand that people earn their favour through good works and religious deeds. The true and living God of the Bible, the Lord God, is not like that. He is merciful. He forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. And Rahab... A foreigner, uh, sorry, a, a foreigner, a forgiven foreigner, a loved pagan prostitute, she testifies to that mercy. And what a testimony it is. It's a great testimony here in Joshua chapter 2. But let me tell you, it's a testimony that is amplified a thousandfold, a thousand, thousand, thousandfold as we move forward through the Bible. For you know what, if Rahab's appearance in Joshua chapter 2 is a little surprising, that's nothing compared to her appearance in Matthew chapter 1. Point four on your outline and let's jump across to Matthew chapter 1. Come with me, Matthew chapter 1. When you find Matthew chapter 1, what you'll discover is that it's a family tree. I know there are some people who really get into their family tree, you know, delighting in knowing about their ancestry, who came from who, what great people came before, and maybe what skeletons there are in the closet. Although I reckon, I haven't got really much interest in the past, I reckon it'd be more interesting to ponder who will come in the future from my family. Rahab appears in this family tree. You can spot her in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. We read there, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. What's her name doing in this family tree? Well, through the Lord's mercy, you see, she was included into the Israelite people. We've already read that. But even more than that, the Lord of mercy chose to include Rahab in the greatest family tree of all time. Really, the family tree of mercy. For this is none other in Matthew chapter 1 than the family tree of Jesus. You can see it in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, don't you reckon that's stunning? The Lord God hears the plea of a pagan prostitute in Jericho. He loves her. He rescues her. He restores her. He gives her a place in his chosen people And he includes her in the family tree through which he allows his own precious son to enter the world in human flesh. No wonder she's there. For the one who was to be given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus, the mercy of the Lord personified. So how fitting it is that Rahab is found in his family tree. For Jesus, the Son of God, was the one who loved the outcasts, the sinners. Jesus had compassion on those who were broken. Jesus showed mercy to people in desperate need. Jesus, who on the night before he died, spoke of his blood being poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus, who resolutely went to the cross so as to be punished for the sins of Rahab and for the sins of all his people in one dreadful sacrifice. Jesus, the mercy of the Lord, personified. Jesus, who says, even tonight, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Friends, Rahab is our model tonight. Her faith is, is the example that is before us tonight. Because, because you see, like Rahab, just like Rahab, all of us must seek refuge in the mercy of the Lord. For just like Rahab, we too live under the shadow of imminent judgment. For Rahab, it was the Israelite army poised to invade For us, it's the risen Jesus, poised to return to this world at any moment. And when he comes, it will be to bring an end to the wickedness of this world. And on that day, all those who are not his will be against him and will fall. It will be a terrible day for those who are not counted among the people of Jesus. But you see, the Lord is merciful. And the time to seek refuge is now. Like Rahab, we need to remember the three M's. We need to recognize the reality of the majesty of the Lord. That he is our creator. That we are his creatures. That he is God in heaven and on earth below. And like Rahab, we need to recognize the reality of the might of the Lord. We need to recognize that he has acted mightily on behalf of his people. We need to believe that truly he raised Jesus from the dead and with that same power can give new life to all those who put their trust in Jesus. And like Rahab, we need to appeal to the mercy of the Lord. We need to come to him and seek his forgiveness. Seek his forgiveness for our failings and our disobedience. Seek a place among his people and our confidence is that just like he heard the the appeal of Rahab and answered so wonderfully so graciously so mercifully so he will answer us he demonstrates his mercy and his love in the death of Jesus for us his promise of mercy if you like is sealed with the blood of his son Friends, the Lord is the Lord of mercy. He shows mercy to all who come to him in humility. He shows mercy to pagan prostitutes and gives them a place among his people. And he calls on them to leave behind their sin and experience the joy of a life of obedience to him through his son. He shows mercy to Islamic people and Buddhist people and Hindu people and atheistic people. And he gives them a place among his people and calls on them to leave behind their false religions and instead experience the joy of a life of obedience to him through his son. He shows mercy to adulterous people and lying people and angry people and homosexual people and greedy people and selfish people and rebellious people and broken people. He gives them a place among his people 
And he calls on them to leave behind their destructive and disobedient choices and instead experience the joy of a life of obedience to him through his son. In other words, you see, he shows mercy to people like us, like our neighbours, like our workmates, like our family members. He's the Lord of mercy. And if you are yet to come to him to seek refuge, if you are yet to come to him and leave behind your destructive and disobedient choices, if you are yet to come to him and experience the joy of a life of obedience to him through his son, can I urge you to follow the model of Rahab? It's not yet too late. Although there is fast coming a time when it will be. The call of Jesus tonight is to come to him and find rest and refuge and joy. And I'd love to talk some more about that later if you would like to. And you know, many people in this room tonight have done just that. Have sought and found refuge in the mercy of the Lord. And I guess for us tonight is a reminder of of his mercy. And we ought to be filled with thanksgiving that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but instead is merciful. And we need to look around our church family and see the fruit of his mercy. A ragbag bunch, really, of broken people who have been washed, restored, forgiven and loved by a merciful God. Because really, we're not surprised he showed mercy to Rahab, are we? We're surprised he showed it to us. We need to look around our community, our world, and we need to commit ourselves to pray for them and to reach out to them that they too may hear of Jesus and appeal to the mercy of the Lord. And we need to be ready to welcome them into our church family in exactly the same way as the Lord has so mercifully welcomed us. It's a very simple truth we're thinking about tonight, but a profound one. The Lord, the true and living God of the Bible, is the Lord of mercy. Tonya read for us some verses from Titus chapter 3, and I reckon they'd be great ones to finish with. If you've got a Bible and you can flick it quick, come with me to Titus chapter 3. Head right from Matthew. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Be great to be able to say amen to these words. Titus chapter 3 verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, it's a great word in the Bible, isn't it? But, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. He saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, he saved us because of his mercy. And if you are yet to experience the joy of coming to Jesus and experiencing the joy of a life of obedience to him, these verses may still be true of you. It's not too late. Love to talk about that some more later. How about we pray?